0: You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past.
1: I live in this sea of color. It's like lying in an ice cave on your back and staring up through the layers of ice at the sun or living inside a Jackson Pollock drip painting. I live in this tidal wash of color that makes no sense. Poet and professor and advocate
2: for the blind, Stephen Cousestone. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, let's face it, most of us take our vision for granted. We just wake up in the morning, we look around and at the world and we see things. But what if you were born without that ability? What, what is life like as a blind person? Poet and professor Stephen Cousisto was born in 1955, essentially blind from birth. But since then he has become one of the country's leading advocates for the blind and visually disabled and disabilities in general. I met him in 1998 when he wrote his autobiography, a book called Planet of the Blind. Now, I have to also tell you that since then, what he's talking about has become a more personal thing for me because over the last few years, last several years, I've been gradually losing my own vision to a progressive eye disease. And so I can now have a much clearer vision, so to speak, of what he's talking about in this book. So here now from 1998. Stephen Kusisto.
1: Well, you know, I think there was a point in my lifetime where, being a blind person, I began to realize how much the sighted public uh, has misconceptions about blindness and may in fact even fear it, have some superstitions and, and dread of blindness. And I trained as a, as a poet, I went to graduate school in poetry writing. And I began to think it would be interesting to write a book that would actually be somewhat um, beautiful in its efforts to describe what blindness is like from the inside. And maybe thereby I could demystify it for the sighted public and and make it less frightening and um, bring forward a story that is somewhat unusual.
0: I, th- I think too many of us, I think you're absolutely right. I-, I think it is very frightening. You tell in the book about having a waiter come and just slap some food down in front of you and then race away. And I, you know, when I read that passage, I thought, well, how rude. But then it occurred to me, no, he's not being rude. He's just frightened. He's terrified.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a real level of fear. Many people have not encountered blind people in particular or disabled people in general in their daily lives, and they've never had a, a frank or intelligent conversation about it with their with their parents or their colleagues and so when they meet a disabled person they really don't know what to say or do and they're so frightened by the possibility they might make a mistake that they're almost mute
0: mm. are are you able have you, have you resolved yourself, are you are you able to laugh at people who talk loud to you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Shh, he, he might hear you, he's blind. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> or, you know what else happens is you're in a restaurant, and you're with sighted friends, and the waitress rushes up and asks all the sighted people what they'd like to have for dinner, and then says, of me and the third person, And what will he be having? (laughs) Well, you are, of course,
0: also mute. Uh, That's that's a a prerequisite for being blind, I guess. But you do have have a wonderful sense of humor. And I guess it's... uh, I think you almost have to have, don't you?
1: It sure helps. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The other other day... Whether you're sighted or not, you have to have a sense of humor about life. Yeah. The other day I was walking along a path uh, near where I work, uh, a place I know quite well... I had my guide dog with me, but she wasn't working. Her harness was off, and she was just on a leash. She was sniffing the ground, and I was just wandering along. And I I did a classic Inspector Clouseau, uh, Peter Sellers, pratfall into an enormous hedge. And the way I hit the hedge, I flipped and fell headfirst into it. And I had on the trench coat, which then flew over my head. (laughs) And so I was swimming my way through this hedge. And, uh, of course, some people saw me and were, I think they were horrified, you know, (laughs) I got all the way through the hedge and stood up, and I said, I said, now you did that on purpose, didn't you, you, you hedge you? Uh, and I, I looked toward the people who were over there, and I said, it used to be over about five feet. They you know, saw me coming. I, you know.
0: There's nothing worse than those uh, terrorist hedges. But yeah, uh, mobile hedge force that... You know, I, I, let me ask you, and, and forgive me, please, if these are, are very elementary questions that you've dealt with all your life, but, I mean, I, I, am, I have very thick glasses, I'm very nearsighted, and I have always feared what it would be like to lose my sight, but then, you know, I mean, somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, well, at least I could always remember what everything looked like normally. Right. What does, it, what does the world seem like, though, to someone who has never seen, quote, normally?
1: There are a lot of studies on that subject, and first of all, I should say that the vast majority of people who are blind uh, are people who have formerly seen or who, as blind people, still have some kind of residual vision. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, myself, I have the capacity to see colors and shapes. Um, I can't really see you, but I know you're, you know... About uh, well, you're 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 seven feet four inches tall. <laughs> That's right. You um, probably could play for the Knicks. That's I don't know, right. you know. Um, but you know, to some extent, many many blind people who you'll see on the street with a white cane or a guide dog have either in the past seen, or they even today see a tiny tiny bit. Um, it's statistically rare that there are blind people who have never seen anything but total darkness. Now, having said that, many studies have been done with people who have never seen anything to get a sense of what their dream lives are like, how they imagine the world, how they picture the world. And I think that it's very, very clear that language plays a huge and important role. Narrative. Um, it's not uncommon for people who are totally blind and have never seen anything to be very literary people, very, very avid readers and... Or uh, poets. Or poets. And... Or poets. <laughs> um, and um, You know, if you really think about it, uh, the the American poet, great poet Kenneth Rexroth once said, we need visionary poetry, which means, you know, vivid, vital, uh, clear poetry. We need that in our lives because our our vision is so poor, and he meant everybody, right? Uh, So that holds true for the blind as well, that they uh, experience and understand the world through uh, the great stories and great descriptions that they receive, and their lives are therefore extremely vivid and very knowing. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to bring forward in the book as well. Mm-hmm. I, I say in the book, I don't speak for all blind people because I can't be all blind people. But then I allude to the fact that many, many blind people lead um, talented and um, very successful and vital lives. And it's not, uh, blindness is not a blankness, a, you know, a, a kind of, um, a, a, Sort of to be a prisoner of of uh, blackness you know it, it doesn't it just isn 't that way mm-hmm. well, a number of years ago, my glasses broke in two,
0: and i couldn 't drive because i can 't drive without my glasses and my then wife drove me at night right. during the Christmas season it was <laughs> to to the optometrist, and i just my eyes were growing wide because you know i'm trying i can't focus on anything all i see is a sea of dots of red and yellow and white and blinking lights and i remember thinking how gorgeous it was but i couldn't see anything of where i was
1: right right that's how i describe in the book in you know my sense of the world that i live in this sea of color mm. um at one point i say it's like lying in an ice cave on your back and staring up through the layers of ice at the sun, and uh, or living inside a Jackson Pollock, you know, drip painting. <laughs> um, I live in this tidal wash of color that makes no sense uh, in many respects. Um, but it can be really quite beautiful once you, you know, start to think of it as uh, an ongoing artistic experience, an aesthetic experience. It's really amazingly lovely. Of course... Um, it helped me to get a guide dog. <laughs> um, I feel so secure working and walking with her around the cities and towns of the world that I'm able to concentrate uh, on just what's, what's beautiful and unforeseen and, and uh, even quite exquisite about living in this kind of colorful but uh, largely useless uh, you know, visual spot.
2: After the short break, is it still okay to call a blind person a blind person? 1998 conversation with Stephen Cusisto. Is
0: part of people's uncomfortableness around people who don't, who, who are, either people who are blind or who are deaf or who are in a wheelchair is part of it because we've become so politically correct. We don't know even what to call you. We don't know how to address you. We don't know if you want to be thought of as handicapped or disabled or otherwise abled or special. or just You know,
1: it it makes us uncomfortable. We're we're afraid we're going to do or or say the wrong thing. I think so. We've become a, uh, you know... Ironically, we've become so sensitive to difference that we've also become, um, you know, thin-skinned and nervous about it. Someone asked me in an interview not long ago, you know, if you had five rules for the general public about how to interact with the blind, what would they be? And I I thought about it for a second. I said, gee, I, I, I don't think I can give you any rules because I myself think rules are very closely tied to etiquette. And etiquette makes me nervous. If I go to a dinner and there are more than two forks, <laughs> I get really scared. And so, you know, I think that's part of the problem, that we, we've become so, you know, um, I think hyper aware of the possibility that we might say the wrong thing, that we become tongue-tied. Uh, someone else asked me, is the, is the word blind still in use? Can you use the word blind or am I going to get letters for having said you're blind on the radio? And it, the truth is, blind is a very acceptable term. Uh, The American Foundation for the Blind, founded by Helen Keller, is one of the primary lobbying organizations and advocacy groups for blind people. The National Federation of the Blind here in Baltimore. Uh, The American Council of the Blind here in Washington, D.C. These are all premier organizations that help blind and visually impaired people um, to, you know, lead more successful and interesting lives. And so uh, the word blind is just fine. And uh,
0: I mean, I mean let, let,
1: let's also be fair to
0: those of us who are trying our best to be sensitive. And then we also like to have a sense of humor. We like to laugh at Mr. Magoo. But then the uh, the uh, the whatever
1: organization it was says, you can't laugh at Mr. Magoo? How dare you laugh at Mr. Magoo? Yeah, I have a lot of complicated feelings about that question. And I'll try to summarize them quickly. I'm a big fan of Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s. Mm. Um, I, you know, love, um, you know, interesting sardonic, off-color even slightly, you know, zany humor. I love Monty Python. Um, You know, I think puncturing the sacred cow is a great thing. Um, I suspect that some blind organizations are upset about the Mr. Magoo movie because the social conditions that the blind live in in the United States are still very poor. Seventy percent of the blind who are of working age in the U.S. remain unemployed, despite their levels of education. And so at the end of the century, that's really quite an awful statistic. And so... You know, here are the blind, many of them really struggling to get, you know, to get on the raft, if you will. And um, a big movie studio like Disney isn't producing movies where the blind are heroes. You know, they're just producing one where, you know, there's a sort of uh, very myopic, bumbling, uh, you know, visually impaired person. And so, you know, I, on the other hand, can laugh at the fact that I just fell into a hedge and, uh, you know, scrambled out of it and talked to the bush. And, you know, scolded it. I mean, I think... Let's um, fall into the
0: category of you can say it about yourself, but you don't like when other people say it
1: about you. Maybe that's it. Um, that that might that might be it. That or, might be it. Or you can
0: call your wife um, a name, but don't let somebody else call your wife the same name. Yeah, <laughs> that might be
1: it. On the other hand, there are moments where blindness is genuinely funny. And I think it would be a shame if we all got to the point in our culture where we simply couldn't, you know, look at it and, you know, get some, um, you know some amusement out of it. I mean, my book has some funny passages in it. Mm? Oh, yeah, I very. describes some odd things that have happened to me along the way. And I think uh, we have to be able to laugh uh, to some extent, uh, or we become brittle and neurotic and uh, and maybe even cold as human beings toward each other. Are you enjoying the author tour? I am. I, uh, I've been writing poetry since 1970 and I got a graduate degree in 1980 in in poetry writing from the University of Iowa, and this is my first published book at 42, and it's just a great pleasure to go around and talk a bit about what led to it and and also now to be a disabilities advocate, to be having that kind of career and to have a chance to talk about blindness as well as books.
0: Well, you know, I I, I have to confess to you, when they they first came to me and said, would you like to interview this man, I said, you know, I very much would like to. I said, because in 12 years of interviewing, and we're talking over 5,000 author interviews that I've done, I have yet to meet a blind author oh uh-huh yeah and and i was really I was really anxious for the opportunity yeah, i mean that 's not the only reason you're here, mean it's also a very good book, but it just you know I, I, it 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 struck me i 'm sure you 're not the first person who is blind who has ever had a book published, and i'm wondering why there aren't more of them on tour
1: well, I think that there's an interesting thing happening right now in the u s um, disabled writers who are in their you know late 30s, early 40s uh, are coming of age. Um, there was a wonderful memoir not long ago by a young uh, American poet named Kenny Freeze um, who grew up um, with very, very misshapen and largely useless legs. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a wonderful memoir about this called Body Remember. Uh, there's a brand new anthology just out from Dutton Publishing House that he uh, he himself edited called Staring Back. It's an anthology of... Uh, I don't know, 25, 30 uh, disabled American writers who just happen to be also beautifully trained, uh, widely accomplished writers, um, you know, who uh, also are disabled and are writing about that experience. So we're beginning to see that generation of disabled people who were mainstreamed, living in the mainstream culture, who had good educations, they're coming of age, they're starting to get their stories out there. And I think it's uh, it's a kind of new... It's a new wave, if you will, that the, uh, the disabled... Um, out there speaking so you'll probably see some more um I would think um well I would just I would probably add that uh there's a lovely section toward the end of the book where I talk about how affirming it is to finally get a guide dog I waited until I was 38 to get this dog who's with me here in the studio her name is Corky she's a yellow labrador she was trained by Guiding Eyes for the Blind and I travel with her everywhere and she has changed my life remarkably, and I think, in some respects, because she made me so, she gave me so much confidence. I became a looser, more relaxed person once I had her, and I think, in turn, that made me a better writer. So, actually, uh, should I say it? Yeah, Corky, Corky was my co-author.
2: <laughs> Stephen Cousisto is 68, and he is still a strong advocate for the visually impaired and disabled community. And you can get your copy of *Planet of the Blind* by clicking on the link in our show notes. We also have links in the show notes to the other two books that Stephen was talking about near the end of the interview. You know, if you've missed anything recently on Now I've Heard Everything, you can find all of our past interviews at our website, heardeverything.com. For example, you may have missed our recent conversation with Louis Anderson.
0: No matter how successful and rich and you know famous I became, it didn't make me any happier. So I had to find inside what was really important.
2: And my 1989 talk with Jimmy Buffett. Margaritaville, is, you know, I don't feel like it's something that I've been strapped with. I'm very happy that it occurred, and uh, there's a lot more substance to me than just one song. But if that's what I'm remembered for, that's fine with me. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And you can catch us on all major podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman whose work inspired a hit television series who also went on then to become best-selling crime mystery novelist. My 1996 conversation with prosecutor turned author Linda Fairstein. I started doing this work as a society we didn't like to acknowledge the pervasive nature of these crimes and we sort of stigmatized victims by not letting them discuss their experience when it was cathartic for them to do it. next time on now I've heard everything. I'm Bill Thompson.